is an Odyssey original. This is KDX in depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman, Arizona, running out of water. We'll go in depth into what this might mean. For Southern California. President Biden and Congress have avoided economic disaster, but we'll take a look at who won politically. Also, a new poll shows just how much people hate some social media giants. Yeah, and they can tweet about it, too, while they hate On it. the thing that they hate. <laughs> right. We start, though, with Arizona running out of groundwater. Sarah Porter is director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Sarah, thanks for being with us. It's nice to be with you. So tell us first about the groundwater issue in Arizona. And as I understand it, it's leading to a uh, a stop, uh, basically a stop order for any future large development. Is that right? Not quite. Um, we have very long term and rigorous uh, planning water supply planning rules for new home development in the greater Phoenix area because it's a hot, dry place. And we don't want people to buy a home and then discover they don't have a long-term water supply. So basically, um, the state of Arizona l- looked at the groundwater supply for the greater Phoenix area and modeling out the demand for the next 100 years, and, you know, including all the current demand and then the, the demand that they have allowed or permitted for new home subdivisions. They concluded that there's not enough groundwater left for anyone who hasn't yet come in and made a claim. In other words, the groundwater is fully allocated. So there are still thousands and thousands of homes yet to be built where they, and those homes have already made a claim essentially to groundwater. So Um, so we're talking about future ones. If they don't have the claim in already, any future ones are not going to be able to do that. Exactly. So there's still going to be a lot of building, but in the meantime, Developers who want to continue to develop and they haven't already certified their water supply, they are going to have to find an alternative supply of water, not local groundwater. But uh, looking at the bigger issue, that's still going to be a major problem for down the road because, uh, you know, the groundwater apparently is not going to be replenishing anytime soon and could get even worse if that does. That's kind of a death knell for a major city, wouldn't you say, if, if it gets to the point where not only is future growth going to be slowed down, but even some uh, current growth uh, could be next? Well, you're right that in a place like Phoenix, groundwater does not replenish as fast as we withdraw it. And so beginning in 1980, Arizona turned to trying to, um, you know, a- admit that problem about groundwater, to manage groundwater sustainably, especially Uh, where most people live, the Phoenix to Tucson areas, and also to discourage growth on groundwater. So it it isn't a death knell. It's just one more signal that was meant to happen based on our very rigorous groundwater planning rules. Now, of course, in California, uh, we get uh, some of our water from groundwater. We get some from the Sierra. We get some, of course, uh, a lot from the Colorado River. But is this problem that that you folks in Arizona are facing in the years to come? Is there a similar issue here? And should California give considerable thought to perhaps stopping some future development? Well, the good news is that California already did um, pass the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act in 2016 and basically set a process in motion for sustainable groundwater management um, particularly by identifying the groundwater basins where where overdrafting groundwater was already a problem. 
and and so you know the the sustainable groundwater management act is not yet fully implemented but california's on the road to managing groundwater sustainably it's really a, a different issue in hot dry desert cities like phoenix than it is in places that get more precipitation all right. Thank you so much, Sarah Porter, director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Right now, though, President Biden uh, got a victory of sorts, I suppose, uh, now that Congress has approved uh, an economic uh, uh, bill that will stop the country from <laughs> plunging into a debt ceiling chaos. With us is uh, Tony Smith, political science and law professor at UC Irvine. Tony, thanks for being with us. Hey, guys. Great to be back. So, all right. So the House did it. The Senate has now done it. The president signs it. uh, And all is well with the world and all is well with the U.S. economy, right? Well, pretty much. Um, I got to confess that I'm a little disappointed this all happened because I was hoping Biden was going to, like, reach over to Kevin McCarthy on live TV, pull a three trillion dollar coin out from (laughs) behind his ear. Um, But. Uh, what what we've got is actually government functioning, despite the the sort of drama queen lead up to to are we going to default? Uh, Biden ran and said he's going to be a bipartisan president. His biggest bills, including this one, have been bipartisan. But if you want to chalk up a win, look and see who voted for it, and you'll see more Democrats voted for the bill in both the House and the Senate than Republicans. But, you know, let's not be too hard on Kevin McCarthy. He's got a section of his coalition that is just ungovernable. They, they wanted to default. It doesn't matter that the Constitution says the United States has to pay its bills. <laughs> it doesn't matter that the raising the debt ceiling is all about funding uh, stuff that Congress approved years ago sometimes. And it, or at any event previously. So uh, in all, this is, you know, it seemed weird, but we should probably all be pretty optimistic that government's kind of working at the federal level. Be nice if we didn't run up to the cliff. But uh, these are some pretty big wins. We've got two years of, of the debt limit lifted, which means it won't become an issue in the, in the presidential campaign or the presidential year election which is really important. Um, Rank-and-file voters have no idea what any of this stuff means. Um, There are only some economists that understand what it means. Um, Very few members of Congress understand what the debt limit practically means. Uh, So I think this is good that we have this sort of political performance issue off the table for the next couple of years. And and speaking of uh, going up to the cliff, maybe putting a foot out over the cliff or so, some people think back to uh, to uh, uh, Joe Biden's former boss, President Obama, and the deal that yeah. uh, he made on the debt limit. Would you say that Biden got a better deal than Obama got? And if so, why or why not? Yeah. So in my mind, no question, Biden did a better job than, Ob- than uh, Obama on this deal. But Biden has been cutting deals in the Senate and the House for 50 years or whatever. He's, he, he's been around forever, and he understands how Washington works. Obama was kind of a newbie. Even as president, he hadn't really been around in long, uh, long enough in the Senate to figure out who was doing bluster and who really meant what they said and how you have to accommodate them. So 
this is one of the things that people may critique Biden's age as president, but he fundamentally understands how Washington works. And the, historically, the best presidents we have are the ones that understand how it works. What's drama? What's real? How do you get policy enacted? How do you do what the country needs done, regardless of what people are saying on TV? So the the uh, the the takeaway I think for the American people should be: He said he was going to rule as a bipartisan or serve as a bipartisan president, and he is. And you know, Kevin McCarthy, he's got a very difficult job. This is pretty good. <laughs> you know, we All if, right, if but, they were but, playing golf. Biden would be a scratch golfer and Kevin McCarthy would have a 12 handicap. And they're both doing pretty good. Right, but let, Let's talk briefly about two years hence, right? So two years yeah. from now, are we setting ourselves up as a country for a kind of uh, the sky is falling scenario? And by that, I mean that every time we get to this cliff, as you referred to it before, uh, right. you know, we always back away at the last minute and everybody goes, yeah, no one's going to ever really let the U.S. go into default. Right. And so far we right. haven't. But isn't there the risk that one of these times when everybody it says it's, yeah, yeah, sure. it's not going to happen, it's going to happen? You can imagine if you had Steve Scalise as, as uh, Speaker of the House instead of Kevin McCarthy, this might not have happened. This but here's the thing. This debt limit thing is kind of a goofy uh, law that was passed in order to fund World War One. <laughs> so it, it really it's a crazy thing. It's the we're the only modern democracy that has this thing. So something needs to happen like a supermajority of Democrats in the House and the Senate could repeal it and get rid of it. Or if. If Trump is the next nominee for the Republicans and the Republican Party kind of breaks apart and there's a new Republican Party, the new folks could come in and say, look, the Constitution says the United States has to pay its debts. 14th Amendment. We can't not pay our debts. Our debts are whatever we commit to spend. The time to do this is in the spending bills, not when it's time to pay the check. It's like you order dessert and 16 appetizers and the most expensive thing on the menu and 75 drinks, and then you're worried about the bill at the end of the day. If you really are worried about this, do it before you order all that stuff. You know, that happens to that, me all the time. I know. I was going to say, have you been time. to dinner really with not. Charles? Yeah, I do that all the yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the seventh mojito. You forget what the bill is going to be at the end of the day, apparently. <laughs> but, oh. So, so a, a, a lot of this is just political theater. And unfortunately, because gerrymandering is so intense in the House of Representatives, on either side of the, of the aisle, there are a lot of people that simply don't understand public policy. They couldn't, uh, they, they couldn't punch their way out of a, of a spreadsheet if they had to. I tell you what, Tony, Tony we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much. Uh, that, right. uh, hey. We're having dinner with Tony Smith. <laughs> <laughs> and, and ordering a lot of mojitos, uh, political science and law professor at uh, UC Irvine. But I'm not paying. No, no, no. I'm not uh, either. Uh, when, we, when we come back, the uh, Justice Department, I'm going to plead the 14th Amendment. Uh, when the Justice Department clears Mike Pence in his classified documents case, but not Donald Trump, what's the difference when we come back?
The Justice Department will not be charging former Vice President Mike Pence over some classified documents found at his home in Indiana. Now, this comes as investigators look into a tape of former President Trump. Uh, Kel McClanahan is executive director of National Security Counselors, which specializes in national security law. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, very simply, uh, explain to the audience why Vice President Mike Pence is not being charged, but the investigation continues into Donald Trump, with some saying that charges are coming. Well, given that the predicate for all of this was the unlawful retention of national defense information, that's the important part of what everybody was looking at, where as soon as Pence's team found the documents, they went to the DOJ, they went to NARA, and they said, here, we have these documents, please take them back. They did not willfully retain them. The second they they had them un, unwillfully, unknowingly, if you believe everybody, and then they gave them back the second they discovered them. Trump, on the other hand, found the documents, was informed by NARA that he had documents, and then continued to have the documents and continued to keep the documents, continued to fight against releasing the documents. That's willful retention. And am I correct that uh, the other distinction when it comes to Mr. Trump is uh, one of his key arguments in his defense has been uh, his, uh, you know, claim, steadfast claim that uh, he had the right to take anything. And if he wanted to, he can always declassify anything he wanted to with pretty much at a whim, whereas this tape that Rob uh, mentioned in the lead in uh, that prosecutors reportedly have would indicate that Mr. Trump was well aware that he couldn't easily declassify this material. So this is where uh, Donald Trump has taken a complicated, nuanced point and drawn the completely wrong conclusion from it. And I don't know if he knows this or not. He Maybe he's just ignorant of the way the law works. But he was right at one point that the president while president has the authority to say, I hereby declassify this information, and it is declassified. He doesn't have to follow a process. He doesn't have to do anything. He can just say it. I am president. I declassify this record. It's declassified while he's president. The second he stops being president, he has no authority whatsoever. And he can't silently declassify things in his brain because you have to tell someone it's declassified for it to be declassified. And so this is all sort of a mishmash of arguments where he seemed in that tape to get the point a little bit where I should have declassified it when I could. And now I, and now it's classified that almost recognizes uh, the problem that does serve as evidence for him not doing that. But even without that, you know, the, the case was open and shut against him from the beginning, if only because declassification and classification are irrelevant. They are red herring. The standard for the Espionage Act is national defense information, which is information relating to the national defense, classified or unclassified. The so, only test so, is whether or not it is closely held. Right. So going back to the briefly the the Trump tape. So in effect, you're saying it's kind of akin to somebody saying, "What I I uh, I should have paid for the jewelry before I walked out of the store with it." Exactly. You had the you, you had or 
I should have, let's say that you're the manager of a store. You have the ability to give away stuff from the store at your discretion because you're the manager, the owner. You can give stuff away while you're the manager. You can't give stuff away after you've been fired. Ah, there you go. Uh, speaking of the tape, I want to go back to the tape for a moment. What's alleged to be in the tape is uh, not only him discussing that uh, he has some awareness that that it was not declassified, uh, even though, as you say, that that's not the point of the issue here. But he was also describing what was inside this document, what this document was about. Allegedly, uh, military plans for uh, options for going to war with Iran, attacking Iran. Uh, if that is the case, if he was sharing what information was in this very classified document, is that in itself right there on the tape? Would that be evidence of of uh, relaying classified information to people who are not qualified to receive it? It, exactly, because information is classified. Documents are not classified. Documents are marked as classified because they have classified information in them. But you ha- you are just as liable for breaking the law if you read out loud from a classified document to somebody who's not allowed to hear it. And in many cases, even the existence of the document is classified. And so that's why in Freedom of Information Act requests to people like the NSA and the CA, you'll often get what's called a GLOMAR response. We can neither confirm nor deny that the record exists or does not exist because telling you that we have a battle plan for Iran mm-hmm. is classified. And so him saying, I have here a, a document that details our battle plan for Iran, the fact that he has a document to that uh, effect is a piece of classified information. All right. Uh, Kel McClanahan, Executive Director of National Security Council, specializing in national security law. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association finds one in 10 people infected with COVID during the Omicron period suffered from long COVID. So with us now is Dr. Joseph Estaldo, infectious disease specialist with Ohio Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So uh, one in 10 sounds, well, it doesn't sound like a lot. It is a lot, really. I and mean, when you consider how many people in this country alone have been infected with COVID, especially during the Omicron period. So we're talking about, what, tens of uh, hundreds of thousands, potentially, right? Yeah, potentially, yeah. You know, initially when Omicron first hit the scene, we thought we were going to be seeing less COVID, and that's indeed not the case, at least based on this one study. But um, you're absolutely right. You know, the worst of the pandemic is gone, I think, and I hope. However, we are still dealing with this really um, unknown entity for both patients and and, uh, providers on on really this long COVID. We still really don't have a clear-cut definition of it, more importantly. And then I think for patients and providers, what's really frustrating is there's no uh, blood tests like uh, we have for other diseases or diagnosing a heart attack. So that's a real problem, though. As you you say, uh, we don't understand it quite enough. Uh, We can't even really define it, but we know it's a thing. So how do you treat this thing that we know it's a thing, but we don't know enough about it? And are we learning enough about it? Is there research going on and how far are we getting? Yeah, so we are getting better with what we know about long COVID, and, and I think that's really the, the point to make. There's a lot of uh, investment being made really at the level of the NIH, really, on really trying to define what long COVID is. And I think the biggest thing we need really uh, for patients and providers is to recognize that long COVID exists. Um, I, I wish we had a better, clearer way to diagnose it. And more importantly, for uh, uh, patients and physicians, how do we treat it? 
Uh, what we know about long COVID now is um, uh, the best way to really uh, avoid long COVID is not to get COVID in the first place. Uh, we know that people who are vaccinated, we know people who are up to date with their boosters are less likely to have long COVID. It's not 100%. We also know based on some publications out there that those who qualify for Paxlovid and get Paxlovid are less likely to get long COVID. But we don't know why, am I right, some people get long COVID to begin with. That is correct. You know, initially, we can give you some demographics on who is more likely to have long COVID. Um, people who are hospitalized are more likely to have long COVID. We see more long COVID in women compared to men. But other than that, we really don't know a lot about, again, how to diagnose it. And there's really no clear-cut uh, treatment for it. And, and that's what's very frustrating for patients. And those patients are out there and about. Um, they're they're challenging for physicians and providers to see because uh, there's no diagnostic test. And right now, the only treatment is just supportive care. And that's a problem if there's no uh, clear-cut definition of it for insurance purposes as well, because insurance companies might look at that and go, this is not a diagnosis that uh, that we can cover. Is that going to become a problem at some point with insurers pulling back a little bit? Well, potentially it is. We know it is recognized. It is a insurance recognized. There's an ICD or billing code associated with it now, which is was not in existence when the pandemic first was on the scene. So, again, as time goes on, I'm hopeful we will know more. But it is quite frustrating for patients and providers. And, you know, I've seen patients with long COVID. The best thing that we can really do for them is to recognize that it exists, support them. And many patients with supportive care, whether it be um, uh, physical therapy or uh, other treatments do get better over time, but we still have to recognize it exists and and, and listen to the patients. I am curious because we were talking in the lead-in to you about uh, the numbers of people who have apparently come down with long COVID during the Omicron period, but of course, preceding that period, as you well know, in the beginnings of the pandemic, uh, you had a what appeared to be a much more ferocious version of the uh, virus, especially I think it was the Delta one, if I'm if memory serves correctly now. Yeah. Um, so do we know uh, this figure one in 10 during the Omicron period are suffering from long COVID? Do we know how many if you add into that mix from the, you know, pretty much from day one, how many people might have long COVID? Yeah, you know, if you look at various studies that are out there, the, the ranges are pretty broad, but the, the highest I've seen is anywhere in the 10 to 25% range. Now, keep in mind, with the Delta surge we had before in the fall, uh, we had a higher severity of illness, and, and people who were hospitalized with COVID are more likely to have uh, symptoms of long COVID. What's different about Omicron is, remember that there were many, many more people who had Omicron, who had COVID during the Omicron surge than the, than the Delta surge. And so the denominator, the amount of people who had COVID was much higher with Omicron than Delta. And how long is the estimate on how, how long somebody suffers from long COVID? What's that run? Is that if you tell somebody you've got uh, symptoms of, of long COVID, uh, you're going to be dealing with this for six months, a year, longer? Yeah, it's quite variable. In this one study, it was six months that people were studied out uh, that long. But uh, I, I can tell you anecdotally in my practice, I've seen people who've had a persistent symptoms consistent with long COVID for over a year. 
Uh, sometimes the symptoms can wax and wane. Uh, sometimes with supportive care over time, people uh, do overall get better. But again, we really don't understand the, the disease process and then more frustrating for the patients. We don't have clear identified treatments. But what do you do as a doctor with a patient who comes in and because uh, there are a lot of people, right, who have had uh, COVID who are asymptomatic clinically, right? Um, that, that, is, that is correct. Right. So what do you do if somebody who was infected never knew they had it? And since we don't know how long it takes really for antibodies to wane, it's conceivable by the time they come to your office, even if you do an antibody test, perhaps it'll show no response. So how do you as a doctor then identify the symptoms that they're walking in with as potentially long COVID? Yeah. Well, welcome to the frustration of infectious diseases. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You know, there are so we, we have the antibody test for the spike protein. There's another antibody test that, that we sometimes do to confirm the diagnosis. But again, antibody tests you have to be careful with because you can have had COVID and not have an antibody response. So again, um, you really have to take the time to listen to the patient and come up with a clinical syndrome or a story that makes sense. All right. Dr. Joseph Gastaldo, infectious disease specialist with Ohio Health. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. Millions of people in the U.S. and millions more around the world, they use Twitter and TikTok as well as Facebook and Instagram. And you would think that from that, uh, you could deduce that those uh, social media platforms are very popular. But are they? A new Axios-Harris poll finds that Twitter, TikTok, and Meta, the parent of Facebook or among the brands that have the worst reputations in the U.S. Mandy Hoskinson owns the marketing agency Zoe here in L.A. She's also the president of the Social Media Club of Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. So explain the the disconnect here between how so many people can continue almost in an addictive fashion using these platforms, but then hate them so much at the same time. Yeah, I think First and foremost, it's a little bit trendy to hate these platforms. I think people have been told to hate them from their friends, from the news. But in the meantime, themselves, like their family, they're still using the app, just like you said. It's completely addicting. I think a little bit uh, comes down to what their friends and family are saying. And I think it also comes down to factors like ageism, like a little bit of uh, sexism, like there's young girls on that platform or there's young people on that platform. What are they doing wasting their time? Do you think that that people are upset or angry at some of these social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook because they feel almost bullied into having to use them because their friends use them, perhaps their employer uses it. And so you have to, whether you want to or not. I think that's a really astute observation. There's a great article written a couple of years ago about how the people that can delete the platforms are privileged. You have to be socially privileged to get off. Uh, you have to have the types of friends or connections where you don't need to be on social media professionally. Uh, if you don't have a LinkedIn and you're trying to rise up in the corporate space, the only way that you're going to do that is by already having connections. So I think that's a super astute observation. I do think people feel forced into it. You know, it's kind of weird because I think of, you know, addiction, right? Uh, somebody creates this illegal street drug and it's addictive because it makes you feel really good and then you want more of it. And that's that's the theory behind addiction. But instead, we're looking at some social media, especially lately, and it seems like they've created a drug that makes you feel bad, but you have to keep <laughs> taking it. Isn't that weird? 
you also choose who you interact with, right? And so, uh, yes, like you can choose to take a drug, you can choose to interact with maybe pages that make you feel that way, but you can also get really creatively inspired. You can connect with people with an identity that maybe you can't connect with in real life. And so everybody makes a choice about what they consume, how they consume it. And at the end of the day, can make a choice about how they feel as a result. And so I'm not sure that it's that platform's fault for making that available to them. Do you think, and now I'm I'm asking you specifically, uh, Mm -hmm. Mandy, do you think your life has been enriched or made uh, happier, perhaps, because of these social media platforms that I presume you use? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, I think it's probably why it's my work. I'm a military kid. I grew up all over the country. And so when social media started rolling out, I was able to reconnect with people from my life. And I realized the power of that. I was able to learn. I was able to connect. And uh, as I moved around, I was able to stay connected. So I saw the power of that from the very beginning. How much are the social media platforms themselves to blame for this hatred that some people feel? Because I'm thinking of when I first got on social media way back when, in the before times, uh, it was it was friendlier. It was about connecting with friends and family, finding out what they're up to. I'm thinking of the those heady, innocent days of MySpace, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but then something changed, and I think that's when the platforms discovered that keeping you in a state of outrage, keeping you angry, mm-hmm drove more clicks, drove more eyeballs, made you spend more time on the platform, which was great for their advertisers and and great for their business model. Is that what's behind? Some people sense that, I think, intuitively, and they hate it. They hate that mm-hmm. that their capacity for hate has been exploited. Mm, yeah, that you said it so perfectly. The, the thing that my colleagues always say is algorithms reward rage, which is very similar to what you said. Uh, you know, this kind of goes all the way back to the history of the internet, which the internet's free. And so uh, there was always going to be a way in which it needed to be monetized if it scaled, and it did. And these boy kings created these platforms and then had to figure out something to do. And the existing monetizing model elsewhere was advertisement. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's hard. Like they, they started at such a small scale, uh, had to make money somehow, and went with what was already working, which is why people are frustrated. I also think people have a better understanding of it because of things like Cambridge Analytica, which is fantastic. Like it's good that people are more educated about what exactly is happening. I think it's great that they have media literacy. I think there's a lot more media literacy that's needed to have a more holistic understanding of the positives and negatives because we know it's not gonna go away. Uh, just very quickly, I'm curious, because we said you're president of the Social Media Club of L.A. Yeah. So, is, so is that a group? Do you all like sit around and say, we hate Twitter, but let's tweet? I mean, what do you do? <laughs> uh, it's a great question. So we're the oldest social media networking group in the city and one of the oldest in the world. Uh, and I always say that Social Media Club is what AI Club would be right now. So we were the futurists, right? We were getting together. And this was before social media manager was a title. It was before influencers were called influencers. It meant something completely different in marketing lingo before. And honestly, uh, one of the... (laughs) 
one of the events we hosted during the pandemic was, is social media ruining the world? And we had a professor who studied it because frankly, we are the most intimately aware of what social media is doing to people because we're doing that thing. Uh, and we have to question ourselves in our work. The way that I've found uh, to stay sane is to do that type of work for organizations that I believe in, uh, organizations that help people, organizations that educate people, that kind of thing, uh, because at the end of the day, it's a tool and you can use tools for good. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Mandy Hoskinson owns the marketing agency Zoe. And she said she found a way to stay sane, which yeah. is more than we could say. I know. I can't. I honestly cannot say that. Sometimes drive me crazy. Hang on, I got to check my social media feeds. Huh. All right, that's it for KNX and Def. We'll be back Monday.